I'm turning this morning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11 and verse 27. Mark 11, verse 27. And they come again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, there come to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And our subject is, The Lord Answers Hostile Questions. And hopefully... We'll deal with uh, three, if not four, of the questions this morning in the time that we have. And the fascinating answers that Christ gives. And there is perhaps a tendency to think that the answers were tactical answers that were framed to silence the questioners. The questions were hostile. The questions were designed, planned, to secure answers that possibly would give them grounds to immediately charge Christ with blasphemy. He was not willing to give that opportunity to them because it was not yet his time. This is the last week of his life. These questions were asked on the Tuesday of what is called Passion Week leading to his crucifixion. But it would, be, it would take place in accordance with the divine plan. He would keep scrupulously to that. Not yet, but just shortly, he will allow himself to be arrested and taken and humiliated and tried and slain. But not on Tuesday or on Wednesday. There were things to do not until towards the end of the week there was instruction for the disciples there was more to be said and so he will not give them a direct opportunity to charge him with blasphemy but nevertheless his answers to their questions are not merely to be seen as remarkable brilliant tactics to silence them. They were that, certainly. But they are actually very relevant answers to each question. And that's what I want us to particularly consider as we proceed this morning. So in verse 27, they were come again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple on this Tuesday morning, there came to him, and what a collection, the chief priests and the scribes, they were Pharisees, the experts in the law, and the elders of the people. Some people think it was the whole Sanhedrin council of 70 who were present in Jerusalem who were assembled. But perhaps it was only a selection of them, all the chief priests certainly, and the leading scribes and many of the others. But it does sound as though it could be the whole lot come and accost him. And this is the first question. And my first heading, is this authorised or illegal? That's the question, effectively, which is put to Christ. Are your activities authorised or are they illegal? You certainly haven't any authority from us the chief priests, the temple authorities. 
What is he doing? He's just cast out the money changers and so on from the temple. An amazing event that one man, of course, he was the God-man. But one man could say the word and all these people would leave with their cattle, their animals, their oxen, their sheep. They were all, their noise and their smells, occupying the outer court, the temple court, the Gentiles' court of the temple. Did one man have the capacity, the power, to order them all out? There were hundreds of them, the money changers, charging exorbitant rates for the temple money so that people could make their offerings, charging exorbitant rates for animals for sacrifice because people couldn't bring their own because they feared if they did, fault would be found with them. This animal is not perfect and so on. And they'd have to pay up. It was an absolute racket. And there were the temple police there These people were not going to be dislodged and allow their tables to be symbolically turned over and leave the temple. But Christ was God as well as man. And when he said the word, if he chose, such power could be exercised by him that they couldn't reject or refuse him. And they went like lambs themselves and fled the temple. By what authority, the chief priests asks, do you do these things? And he'd been preaching in the temple the previous day, all day, the gospel. The gospel, which is defined for us in the gospels as the message of repentance and remission of sins. The taking away of sin by repentance. He'd been preaching the message that God's forgiveness is an act of grace. It comes freely. You don't have to earn it. Don't think that your scrupulous keeping of the temple ceremonies actually secures acceptance with God. That comes only by the free kindness and grace of God. He'd been preaching that. Well, that's against the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. They teach acceptance by God by your works and these works were defined as the meticulous keeping of the procedures of the worship of ancient times and if you can follow out every single laid down provision then you will be accepted you will earn it no Christ teaches effectively only by the grace of God Well, they're in complete collision with him. And they say, by what authority doest thou these things? And specifically, who gave thee this authority to do these things? Now, if the Lord were to say, my authority is given to me by the Father, which he does say in other places, if he were to say it right there, then they would have the grounds to have him immediately seized for, in their eyes, blasphemy. So he is going to respond by, or would have responded, by giving them his earthly authority. And he had not only an earthly authority, but he had 
a heavenly authority had an earthly authority also. And his earthly authority, the one commissioned to recognize him, point him out, name him as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, the one who had that authority was John the Baptist, the forerunner, prophesied in the Old Testament, the forerunner that would come. He is the one who identified and named Christ on earth. So you see, Christ's question to them was entirely relevant. Verse 29, And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask of you one question. Answer this, and I'll tell you what my authority is. Now the question is not merely tactical, it's 100% relevant. Verse 30, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Do you recognize John? Do you acknowledge him as a true prophet? That's what he was. The last of the Old Testament prophets and the first of the New Testament prophets, John the Baptist, a prophet indeed. He did no mighty works, but all the people recognized him as authentic, as a prophet of God. And he was the one who on earth recognized and acknowledged and named the Savior. The baptism of John, his work, his preaching, his baptism of almost everyone, a baptism of repentance, his declaration that the kingdom of God had come upon you and that here he is, the Lamb of God, the one who all the sacrifices of the Old Testament prefigured and illustrated. Here he is. So the work of John, was it, John is now executed, of course, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. And they're stuck. Verse 31, they reason together among themselves frantically. If we say from heaven, we recognize him. He's a true prophet. He will say, why then did ye not believe him? Believe what? Believe his clear statements that Christ was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that he is Messiah and Saviour. If we say he was a true prophet, he's got us, he'll say, well, why don't you believe him? He has identified me. But verse 32, but if we shall say of men, well, they feared the people because everybody thought John was a prophet and the people would renounce them. And verse 33, they answered and said unto Jesus, we cannot tell whether he was an authentic prophet or not. So Christ answering saith unto them, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. But you see, it wasn't just a tactic. It was based on the fact that John the Baptist was the agent of God to commission him and point him out on earth. He was the 
earthly authority, if you like. And we need an authority for everything we do in the faith. We can't make it up ourselves. We don't have the wisdom to figure out God's requirements, God's plan, God's standards, the grounds on which God will receive people and relate to them and bless them. We can only go by God's word. We must have an authority. Everything from this pulpit must be grounded in the authority of God's word. The preacher knows nothing of himself. It must come from revelation. There must be an authority. And John was an authentic prophet. And he had the authority to point out Christ. That's the first question. The second question I want to bring you down to chapter 12 and verse 13. And this is a heading. Is your allegiance to God or Caesar? This was going to be the challenge brought to him. Verse 13, and they send unto him, notice the language, certain of the Pharisees. Certain of the Pharisees. There were an a specially selected group of Pharisees. Now Mark doesn't tell us this, but Matthew tells us that they sent to him disciples of the Pharisees. This is real cunning. The Pharisees said, we've got a question that he cannot answer without uh, uh, alienating all the people or alienating the Roman authorities. But we will ask our question in a subtle way. We'll send students to ask the question. Disciples of the Pharisees. So a group of students were briefed to ask this question. And they go to Christ. They're learners. They're younger men. I don't know how old. Late teen, early 20. But they're young men. Everyone wants to help the students, the young men. And if they come with questions, you don't suspect them of simply wanting to trip you up. They're students asking questions. We'll answer them in good faith. You see the cunning of this. Students will put their blockbuster question. Not only students of the Pharisees, but Herodians. They were really a group of politicians. They were people who fiercely supported the Roman occupation. They had nothing in common with the Pharisees. Look, the Pharisees getting together with the Herodians. They're usually looking at each other over smoking gun barrels. They're hostile to each other. The Herodians were all in favor of the rule of King Herod Antipas. They believed in the poll tax of the Romans and Roman authority. They thought the Jewish council in Israel was a waste of time. They wanted total Roman authority. So it's the Pharisees and the Herodians together to catch him in their words. And when they would come, they say unto him, verse 14, Master, they're very respectful, Rabbi, teacher, we, 
Listen to this. We know that thou art true and carest for no man, which means uh, you don't say things just to, uh, to please men. Say what they want. You say what's right. You're not here to court favor. For thou regardest not the person of men. If uh, there was a party here that desperately wanted such and such a position, you wouldn't pander to that. But teach us the way of God in truth. Perhaps they overdid it. But here's the question. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? This was a dynamite question. Give tribute to Caesar? Well, in due course, the Lord asked them to bring a coin. Our King James Version calls it a penny. It's a denarius, a Roman silver coin. There are many of them preserved and in existence, and you can see them in museums today. On one side, it would have had the bust of the Caesar of the time. On the other side, it would have had him holding a trident of some sort and seated on a throne, and sometimes a horse. So bust one side, face, full figure the other side, and on the reverse side, the words would appear in Latin, the high priest. So this silver coin, which was the coin you would pay your Roman tribute in, your tax, your poll tax, every male over 16 years of age had to pay it. We don't actually know how often they paid it. But that was silver coin was worth a day's wages. In today's money, it's, people say it's about 90 pounds. Whether you paid it quarterly or annually, I think possibly more often. It was a lot of money. But the people hated it for two reasons. One, because they hated paying money to the Romans. Two, because it was a, an act of submission. And it was blasphemous, this coin. The high priest. And Caesar was on it. And all Jewish nationalism and Jewish sensitivities were infuriated by this. So here's the question. Are we God's people or are we Caesar's people? Should we pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Yes or no? Say the students as though they want us, sincerely want an answer. Tell us, master, teacher, tell us what we must do. Pay it or not? If he says pay it, the Herodians who support Rome, well, they will be satisfied. And the Jews will be completely alienated. He will enrage them all. Yes, submit to Rome. Pay the poll tax. If he says no, the Jews will be pleased but the Herodians will say, this is treason. And it would be treason. And there would be grounds for Roman arrest. So either way he goes, it's a trap. And a very cunningly laid trap. But it is a serious issue. The uh, uh, Israelite would say in those days, are we gods 
Or are we, do we belong to God? Or do we obey and belong to Caesar? It is an issue. Sometimes it's an issue today. There are some Christians troubled by this. As Christians in the church, who rules us? Caesar or Christ? If they tell us, if they make regulations in a pandemic for everyone to observe, to stop infection spreading, or so they thought it would at that time, should we ignore it because we're Christ's? Or should we obey it? That's obeying Caesar. It's still an issue today. Do we obey God or Caesar? And that's the trap question put by the Pharisees to Christ. Well, why tempt ye me, he says. Bring me a penny, a denarius, and today a 90-pound coin, that I may see it. Verse 16, and they brought it. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image of superscription? And they said, Caesar's. And here's the response. Verse 17, Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Literally, it translates the Greek, which says they were astonished at him. They never expected this. He says both are right. We are under Caesar. He's built your roads. He gives throughout his empire peace. He maintains the army. Yes, to hold us in subjection, but also to maintain peace through the empire. He provides services. Well, God has ordained civil government. We are very often opposed to it. We may not like it, but it is an institution of God. Scripture teaches that. All men are placed by God under civil government for law enforcement, for order, for things that keep communities safe and sound and together. So we owe them. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Honour the king. Honour the government. Vote them out if you want to. Vote if you have the opportunity. Vote another group in if you have the opportunity. And that's your mind. But whoever's in power, government generally is ordained of God. And to God, the things that are God's. Christ is Lord of the spiritual realm. So, there are times when we obey God rather than men. It's easy to know what times. The moral law. The doctrines of the Bible. The faith and the preaching of the gospel. Obviously, if... uh, The civil government tells us to break God's moral law. We obey God rather than men. If the civil government says you may not preach the gospel, we obey God rather than men. There's an example of that in the book of Acts in chapter 5 and elsewhere also. The exceptions to the sway of civil government are all mentioned in the scripture. And we can list them. There are seven exceptions in the New Testament. And we know when we have to obey God 
rather than men. But outside those seven revealed exceptions, we comply with civil government. What Christ said is a standard for all times, and it's taught elsewhere in scriptures also. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were astonished at him. But it's, a, it's an answer to the question. The question is, is the Christian or the Israelite worshipper of old for God or for Caesar? For both, replies the Lord, as appropriate. And the question is, a, is not just a tactic, it's a direct answer. But then look down to verse 18. And we come to another issue. I'll do this very briefly. Then come unto him the Sadducees. The Sadducees. Oh, the Sadducees. The liberals of the time. They didn't believe the soul went on after death. They didn't believe in the immortality of the soul. So they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in heaven didn't believe these things. Everything to be concerned with to the Sadducees was on earth. To talk about the spiritual hereafter and to heaven to them was a waste of time. They were not believers in these things. So here's their question. They lost no opportunity to poke fun at the resurrection. They say there's no resurrection and they asked him saying... And they put up a case. Master, Moses wrote unto us, this has the authority of Moses. If a man's brother die, actually in Leviticus where this law is given through Moses, it particularly refers to a case where everybody is dwelling in the same household, the same house. So the case will be this, that they put, there's a house and there were seven brothers in it. And the first brother marries a wife and he dies. Now here's the provision that was given through Moses. If a man's brother die and leave his wife behind him and leave no children, she's childless, she's a widow, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. So ideally, the brother should marry the wife. And the idea behind this is that the dead brother, will, his inheritance will continue through that son. Now, if you didn't want to marry your brother's wife, then you could refuse to do so. And there was a certain amount of shame due to you for that. There was a little ceremony whereby you accepted that element of shame and you went your way freely. But uh, the case they put is there were seven brethren. The first took a wife. The men all die in turn. <clears throat> We've no idea what the lady did to them or didn't do, but they all die in turn. And so the question is, when she dies, will they all be her husbands in heaven? Well, that's not possible, of course. That would be quite wrong for her to have 
seven husbands in heaven. So what's behind the question? What's behind the question is, do we believe in Moses or do we believe in the resurrection? Do we believe that God is dealing with us only on this earth? Or do we believe that we're all going to heaven and there's a resurrection of the body? That's the question. Is it earth or is it heaven? That's a question which is still around today, though it's not usually articulated. And it takes this form. Some Christian people say, what's the good of being a Christian? I believe in Christ, they say. But what's the good of being a Christian? Ah, I've got it. The purpose of being a Christian is we are to reform the world. So the object of Christianity is to make the world a better place totally. And we should be expending our energies reforming the world, getting involved in politics, perhaps, uh, reforming everything. Well, it's a good thing if you can reform terrible injustices and oppressive things, It's a very good thing if you can be like some of the great reformers of the past who took the boys out of the chimneys, sweeping them, who uh, stopped child employment in that way and abuse of people. Yes, that's all uh, a very good thing. But is it our primary role to have this objective, to reform the world? I can't think, some people say, it's worth being a Christian if there isn't a purpose. And I'm embarrassed, they say, if people say to you, you Christians, you're only concerned with the salvation of your soul. Why aren't you concerned for reforming the world? And some people say, I can't bear that question. Yes, I must be involved in reforming the world. It's a similar thing, really. The Sadducee says, isn't it best to focus on this life? Besides which, some of the provisions of Moses don't work if we transfer them into heaven. So it's right to be concerned only with this life and not with heavenly objectives. No, says God, this world is a doomed world. We do what good in it we can while we can, but we can't reform it totally. The poor you will always have with you, says the Lord. Do what you can, but it will always be a doomed world in which there is violence and meanness and cruelty and oppression. It will always be there because it's a world of sin and alienation from God. Your first task, while you do good wherever you can, your first task is to souls to bring people to salvation, to bring them into union with God, to bring them on the road to heaven and to glory. We're looking there. That's our objective. We're in the service of heaven, in the service of Christ. That's really the essence of the question. But anyway, verse 24, Jesus answering said unto them, Ye Do ye not therefore err, because ye know not the Scriptures? There are many passages in Scripture that would have given the Sadducees a clear answer, and they didn't know them. 
neither the power of God. For when they shall rise from the dead, this is particularly believers in Christ, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. Not exactly like the angels. The angels have no bodies. Christ is affirming a bodily resurrection. Christ saves not only our souls, but our bodies. And at the time of his return to this earth, and winding up of the present age, all the souls in glory will be clothed upon with glorified bodies. So we're not exactly like the angels, we're very, very different. But in one respect, we're like the angels. The angels don't reproduce themselves. The angels don't have angel babies. And there'll be no more reproduction in heaven among saved human beings. Why not? Well, there'll be no death. So there will be no birth to replace the deaths. We shall be in that respect like the angels in heaven. And in certain other respects, we'll be like them. But in major respects, they are ministering spirits serving us and we will be greater even than they are. And as touching the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, was one book originally, we have it divided into five books today, how in the bush God spake unto him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. That's very ponderous, that language, but it's intentional. I am the God of Abraham. I deal directly with Abraham. And the God of Isaac. Why doesn't he just say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? To make it clear to our minds that God is relating in a living way to each one in turn. They're all still alive. Because they're in glory. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. He therefore do greatly err, and that little word err translates the Greek for wonder. You wander about and you stray from the truth or the pathway. Well, we've time for just one last question. I'm afraid there's a lot this morning. But just look at uh, verse 28. One of the scribes came. Just one now. In that they picked one. I think we may assume they picked the most learned of them all. And the best available spokesman. And he came to ask the last trick question. One of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? 
Now I'll tell you what he was really asking. Teacher, we've been listening to you. We've heard you preaching. We've heard you talking about free forgiveness and the grace of God that if people repent, their sins will be taken away. Remission, that means lifted off. Their sins will be lifted from them and a burden no longer. And it will be a free salvation and a free forgiveness. Now that troubles us very much because we place all our emphasis on the law. I mentioned this earlier. The ceremonies, the sacrifices, all the rituals and perfect conformity gets us favour with God. So what are you saying? In effect, he's asking him, is it law or grace? Are we to deserve God's kindness and affection by our works, by conformity to the law? Or are you saying the law's no good? This law given by God, this divine law, is useless. And you've got an alternative. Free forgiveness, free grace. Is it law or grace? Christ probably had mentioned some of the provisions of the law when he preached the gospel. It's very likely in my mind he may have mentioned Deuteronomy chapter 29 or 30 where Moses says, if your hearts are changed, if you have sincere love for God, that's everything. You will be accepted. It's perhaps some of these texts that Christ had brought out, but they found them very confusing. So this is the question. Which is the first commandment of all? Which is the greatest? Which is the most important? Is it a law commandment, or it is one that just says, love the Lord? Which is it? It's dynamite, this question, in the heart of the scribe who asked it. He's trying to catch the Lord. If he says, the law is inadequate, the law is not enough, the law is not good, well, everyone can be stirred up against him. Jesus answered him, verse 29, the first of all the commandments, and he quotes the great summary scriptures of Leviticus, is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. With everything, love him with all your heart. Don't love something else as much as you love the Lord. Don't love the Lord only with a bit of yourself and love the world with the rest of yourself. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, your prayer faculty. Pray to him, praise him. With all your mind, your powers of reason, learn of him. With all your strength, your will, your volitional. This 
is the first, the greatest commandment. Love the Lord. Well, that shook the scribe. It came home to him. I have put all the emphasis on keeping the ritual. But more important than that, important as that is, it's not denied while the Old Testament runs, more important than that is to love him with all my heart. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth. Is he convicted? Is he saying in himself, I haven't done this. I haven't done this. He seems to be, verse 33, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the soul and with all the strength and to love his neighbour as himself is more, is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is more important than all the ceremonies. He's not brought to say the ceremonies are no good. He was to learn in due course that they stood only until Christ came. He fulfills them all. But it's more than all. And Christ says, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. When you realize that, salvation is not by works. It's by having a heart that loves God and is 100% for God with all your strength and being. Because when you think like that, you soon say, I have not done this. I cannot do this. And your ears hear the word of grace. Repent and believe and you will be freely forgiven and freely brought into union with God. Each question is full of significance. Each question is burningly relevant. Each answer is burningly relevant to the question which is asked. Each answer stands for all time. We're out of our time. And uh, that's for our thinking this morning.